welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Kathleen Duval. Dr. Duval is the Bowman and Gordon Gray Professor of History at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her research focuses on early America, particularly cross-cultural relations on North American borderlands. She explores how Native Americans, Europeans, and African men and women interacted in the 16th through 19th centuries. Today, she discusses her latest book, Independence Lost, Lives on the Edge of the American Revolution, which won the Book of the Year Award from the Journal of the American Revolution and was a finalist for the 2016 George Washington Book Prize. And now, Drs. Duval and Bradburn. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is Doug Bradburn. I'm the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington here at beautiful Mount Vernon, and I'm delighted to have with me today a professor, Dr. Kathleen Duvall from Chapel Hill. Kathleen, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, Kathleen gave a great talk last night on her new book, Independence Lost, uh, Lives on the Edge of the American Revolution, and I thought it was extremely well received. Uh, wonderful job. Thank you. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Such a big crowd and an enthusiastic one and great questions. I'm delighted to be here. Okay. Here's the first question. Do you remember the first time you ever came to Mount Vernon? If you, if you did come to Mount Vernon. So I came here as a child. My cousins lived in Alexandria. Um, and I remember being impressed with it. Thinking, I, I think my, my main impression was, oh my goodness, George Washington walked here. Okay. Were you into history as a, a younger person? I was, and I, and I was really interested in early American history and yeah. uh, George Washington oh, really? and Pocahontas and some of the big characters of early yeah. American history. I'd read their biographies. I had the George Washington's World book that had been my dad's mm. uh, back in the 40s um, that was about George Washington but was also about all the things going on in Europe and in the Americas at the same time that he was alive. Huh. And I think that's one of the first things that sparked my interest. Like, here's this person I've heard of, George Washington, and he lived in a particular time, right? Yeah. He's not just this amazing person standing alone. He's of his own time. And I think that's where I first started hmm. thinking about eras uh, really? and people within their eras. Well, yeah. this wasn't yeah. even set up. I didn't know that she was going <laughs> to talk about George Washington's <laughs> incredible influence on <laughs> Her skyrocketing star <laughs> career here. Uh, well, th now you know who to thank. Of course. Absolutely, thank you. Uh, well, oh, you, I'll speak for George. You're welcome. <laughs> That's what George Washington would say. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, uh, that's interesting. Um, do you re recall any particular teachers or anything in elementary school or high school that were? Uh, instrumental in thinking, well, maybe I should be a historian. It was mostly in high school. I had really good both American and European history teachers in high school, and mm. I remember... Were they coaches as well? <laughs> was, were all coaches. It was I mean, post-coaches. That, that's why coaches. I did not okay. mention my middle school <laughs> <laughs> history teachers who, yeah. who were coaches. Uh, but in high school, I had, um, let's say, professional history <laughs> teachers, mm. teachers who'd chosen history. And uh, I remember, I grew up in Arkansas, and I remember one of them uh, saying, talking about big themes and saying, at, at which I forget which particular theme it was, saying, Cotton Pickett learned this! And uh, <laughs> it stuck with me as, okay, there are big, important things to remember Cotton Picking <laughs> That's <laughs> a fantastic history. phrase. Yeah. I'm going to incorporate that okay. in my staff meetings, right. I think. Uh, Arkansas, growing up in Arkansas, uh, is that the only place you lived as a child? Or? I lived in South Georgia for four years okay. uh, and in Northwest Arkansas the rest of the time. Okay, Northwest Orkansa Arkansas. Right. Well, I think of Arkansas, I think of somewhere in the middle of the country. Yes. And somewhere where the Ozarks are. The yes, Ozarks I grew up in, in the Ozarks, that's right, in oh, Fayetteville, you, named you after Lafayette. You, you grew up in Fayetteville, right. Arkansas. Okay, right. Right, wonderful. Um, and, uh, and you went to college at Stanford. Right. Uh, Stanford, of course, is famous now for producing more billionaires than any other uh, college. How's that going? For yes, you, I'm still working on that. <laughs> so uh, either at least uh, getting a billionaire donor. Yeah. So if anybody's out there listening, uh, I'm open to that. <laughs> you must have been there at a, at, a, at a very exciting time in the tech uh, in universe, 
where everybody was thinking about the, the new internet world. Or right. My maybe first you were there right yeah. before that got going. Right, yeah, right. I, I, so yeah. My friends who were computer science majors, I, I just remember being shocked at that they were getting paid at all for their internships in the summer, uh, <laughs> and that was only the beginning. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Uh, so, but uh, it's obviously a great uh, university. And how, how was the humanities experience there at Stanford? Um, it was. It was really good. It was actually my. Uh, I, I was interested in sort of modern America. I, g I got interested in modern America while I was there, and it was really only my very last quarter at Stanford when I happened to take a seminar with Paul Longmore that I realized that early America was was what I wanted to focus on. That it's where. Um, I found is that the questions of how different kinds of people who thought they were very different from each other, maybe were very different from each other, learned about each other, fought each other, or mm. allied with each other, sort of uh, were the most um, exciting, and, and that's why I chose it for graduate school. Well, Paul Longmore wrote one of my favorite oh, George Washington good, books, good, right? actually, yes. The Invention of George Washington, yeah, which yeah. I don't think many people read anymore. Right, I wish they would. It is uh, a great book. It's a great book, and this is a book for y those of you out there, if I could properly characterize it. It really looks at um, the creation of George Washington's image uh, in, in the actually the period before the Revolution and up through the Revolution, yeah, I guess, and right, through the Revolution War. Right. It really shows him, as yeah. uh, among many other things, as a, as a politician, as, as yeah. somebody concerned about his own image. It has a lot in there about his uh, reading and his education, yeah. which is something that's still understudied, mm -hmm. although there's a great book by Adrian Harrison that just came out. On that, and of course, here at the library, we love to think about uh, what George Washington read, mm -hmm. and uh, Paul Longmore goes into that quite a bit. Right, right, yeah. right. Well, interesting. Yeah. So that uh, was a so that was a powerful influence on you, and then you went to graduate school, and and mm -hmm. because you wanted to be a professor, you wanted to write history, or did you you, you know you didn't yeah, know in graduate school? Both, then? right. I wanted to write history. I was really interested in the past, and mm -hmm. and I wanted to be a professor. My dad's a professor, and I thought it seemed like a pretty good life. Pretty good gig. Pretty good gig. So uh, you went to graduate school to study a distant world called early American right. history, but you decided to write about Arkansas, basically. And, and, uh, no. and, right? Is that true? It is not true. true. <laughs> and I mean, I didn't. When I applied, I had no intention of writing about where I was from. In fact, when I was 18 years old, I left Arkansas on purpose, uh, mm -hmm. intending not to ever yeah. spend much time there again. Um, well, it's not a place that people used to associate with early America. Right, uh, right. But I think after Paul Longmore's class, which was about encounters in early America, mm -hmm. I sort of, for the first time, realized there was a lot of Spanish and yeah. French involvement in North America. Yeah. And uh, early America isn't just the thirteen colonies right. on the, the edge of the Atlantic. Right, yeah. right. And so I started looking at what uh, I actually didn't know what the history of mm. the place I'd lived in was from you know before the Civil War. Mm. And so I thought, well, I think the French were here. <laughs> so I started to look for documents. And of course, it turns out there are so many documents yeah. that the French and Spanish kept from their time there. Mm -hmm. um, and it just sort of, I don't ever remember deciding to study Arkansas, but it just became my dissertation over time. Well, the, your, your first book, The Native Ground, Indians and Colonists in the Heart of the Continent, I grew out of the dissertation. Right. And uh, what I remember from that book, and, and particularly what people appreciated about that book, was uh, uh, it was sort of in the... It's sort of building on the sort of building away from the whole middle ground phenomenon of uh, Richard White's work, which had described the upper Midwest, I guess, during a particular period in time, in which he was trying to describe a world in which uh, natives were powerful, but there was uh, powerful um, European groups as well, mm -hmm. and it was a middle ground, the right. Pas de and and so uh, yours, a native ground, seems like you're you're looking at another region which has a really different characteristics with different interactions between peoples. What am I missing? In my, in no, my that's exactly right. I, I actually, as I was starting to study Arkansas and read the documents from there, I thought I would discover a middle ground. Right. I, I was yeah. really uh, you know, struck by Richard White's book of how there was this place that he had discovered where Indians had a somewhat right. equal power to Europeans. And then I started reading these documents from Arkansas, and they were written by these French and later Spanish officials who mm -hmm. were sent to what they thought of as the end of nowhere mm -hmm. with maybe five soldiers surrounded by thousands of Indians, mm -hmm. and they would write back these long letters about how powerless they yeah. were. And yeah. I 
over time realized this is not a middle ground. This yeah. is actually a place where Indians have most of the power. Yeah. Um, and that's how I sort of came to the title Native Ground, uh, but also a book about a that became much more about Indian power yeah. over Europeans than I thought it would be at the beginning. And I think it was also a book that uh, broke away from the, the declension kind of story of Native Americans as well, right? Yeah. It was about yeah. cycles of, uh, of changing Native grounds, Yeah, essentially. right, that's a really nice way to put it. They, um, because I, the book starts uh, in the 1400s before Europeans even arrive yeah. and it goes through um, the, the toward the end of the book is a war between the Osage and Cherokees, two different Indian groups. Mm -hmm. And I just found that over these multiple centuries, there are these cycles, these changes in who's, who has the most power. But until the 1820s and 30s, it's uh, the people who rise to the top over another people are also Indians. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you became a Native American historian. I did. I, some, I mean, I knew. I always knew they the would be, They would be part of what I did. There was George Washington, <laughs> the influence, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> right. uh, he was nowhere to right. be found. Right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. It. Indians just the <laughs> Indians of the 17th and 18th century sort of converted me. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, your work is now, I think, reflexively called part of what what uh, historians describe as the sort of continental turn in early American historiography. Uh, there's the Atlantic turn and the continental turn, which are two ways to sort of de-emphasize uh, or recenter the, the story in different places. Uh, you know, de-emphasize the old narrative of, you know, this is all about Massachusetts or mm -hmm. this is all about Virginia. Do you, did you see yourself as part of something as it was coming up or did you, or did you, you know, was that part of your graduate school kind of thinking, I'm part of this new trend or, or was this something that, that you just, you know, I don't know, you don't agree with. I mean, maybe you see it in a different light. No, I definitely see my work as part of part of those trends. I think which are both, as you say, opening up early American history, just making it about more places, more people, a longer time period, a time period mm. going back earlier yeah. as well. Yeah, um, pre pre contact. Right, is, uh, right. A lot more yeah. of us are, are more facile with that that world. Yeah, right, right. Mm. And I think it's important. It helps to sort of uh, decenter Europeans um, and remind us of. What a long period the colonial period is mm. as well. That yeah. it's it, Europeans don't arrive in 1492 and suddenly take over every place in the Americas. It mm. takes um, centuries for that yeah. to happen, and it's not inevitable along the way. Um, so I think when I started, at first I was just, I, I sort of assumed it was okay to study beyond the 13 colonies and only re later realized, I mean, yeah. in my second graduate seminar or so, realized that that was a new thing. Yeah. Um, and... Mm -hmm. uh, well, being out west, maybe, and being from Arkansas and, yeah. and being out west, you had a quite a different perspective on what was legitimate to study. Uh, I think <laughs> I think that that combined uh, with just yeah. ignorance. Yeah, <laughs> together. Well, there you go. We've all stumbled into greatness. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. that's good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, um, uh, you know, so the the book was well received. I mean, you won book awards and and uh, and all that sort of thing. But you didn't stay just a Native American historian. I don't want to just an Amer Native American historian. You moved on uh, to to uh, to work on colonial Louisiana. Mm -hmm. uh, where did that interest come from? Um, so I think that uh, that came because that's not in Arkansas right. River Valley. Na last time I checked, right? Well, colonial, they're connected. Uh, yeah, they're they're connected. The water flows down. Right, the, right. Yeah. And the French, the, sort of the first definition of French Louisiana, the first time the French were in Louisiana, it actually did include no, of course, you know, yeah. the, the lower Arkansas River Valley. And mm -hmm. I think it was actually on both sides of the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And so as I started to work on that, it was it was kind of more articulating the argument that the French came in and called this place Louisiana, but if you look on the ground in most places, sort of outside of New Orleans, basically, mm -hmm. it was still um, still Indian country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a lot of great work was done. You got your job at uh, Chapel Hill, right? Right out of graduate right. school. No, I had a two-year postdoc at the McNeil Center for Early American Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, first. talk about that experience yeah. a little bit. The McNeil Center is known as the great center for uh, you know the cutting edge of early American history and. What was it like to spend two years there? Oh, it was just it was just amazing. The people who came in and out giving talks, mm -hmm. um, much like you're at Mount Vernon, it's just there's there's always something to hear. Mm -hmm. um, you find out what sort of what's just been published, what hasn't been published yet, what people are working on. Yeah. I found myself over and over sitting in the back of a talk, making notes actually about my own work as I heard what people were working on and how that mm. helped to make 
sort of you think through big themes and big yeah. significance of what I was working on, and it's just such a such a welcoming place for young scholars, for older scholars now. It turns out as well. Uh, yeah, I think for um, well for scholarship in general, the you know the the chance to to be around so many different people, the fellowship that you can have, um, because it's such an isolating thing that we do. I mean, right, writing these right. paragraphs on your own, right. uh, you know. But uh, but in fact the it's that um, that shared uh, challenge, I right. think, of understanding what is significant about your work. Right, right. Uh, yeah. That requires a group of people. Yeah, at some yeah. Point. Right. I think that's exactly right. I, I think that in uh, history, I I was also very fortunate to have a postdoc. Right. You know, in my transition yeah. from graduate yeah. school to being a professor, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's a. I mean, I know there are not many out there, but that's a great way to it go. It really is, uh, yeah. I, I, there should be more. You all should have some here. We would love to have <laughs> a, a longer-term one. The, your billionaire friends from Stanford need, <laughs> okay, to, uh, right. need to call us up for sure. Uh, but, I, you know, they're, they're so valuable. They, they, they've grown quite a bit. I mean, fellowships right, in general right. and postdocs yeah, have grown yeah. quite a bit in the last yeah. 20 years. Right. I think it's something that people used to think of as mostly for the sciences, but yeah. it's just that kind of maturing period for a young scholar mm. yeah. is uh, just – it, it can influence a young scholar's whole career, yeah. just setting them a little bit forward when they start their, their first job. Well, great. So you started teaching then, at, uh, and how did you feel like uh, you were as a teacher when you first started off? Um, let's see. So I, uh, I, so I was thrown into teaching uh, the American Revolution at Penn. There you go. Um, Back to George. Right, right. And I thought, um, you know, I've been working on this dissertation on Arkansas. I, I yeah. You were basically posing as an early American. Yeah. I didn't want to say it. Certainly right as away. a scholar of the revolution, teacher of the revolution. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, a few weeks in, I was just sort of writing my lectures right before I had to deliver them. One of the, the wonderful mm. Penn undergraduates said to uh, another professor in the department, uh, Professor Duval knows everything about the American Revolution. And I thought, all right, this is how you teach. You Actually, you just, <laughs> you're a week ahead. You're learning as you go. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I can do this. And then, then, then yeah. of course, I, I think that's having to teach that. Uh, um, sort of uh, somebody had gone on leave and I stepped in to teach it. Um, was part of what influenced me to write more directly about the revolution mm -hmm. uh, in my next book. Yeah, well, great, great. That's a perfect transition to the main event here, which is independence lost. Uh, it does seem to me like, oh, someone who's really interested in a different history says, well, you know what? I can tell you about the revolution, but I'm not going to talk about the American Revolution <laughs> in the traditional ways right, that you think right. about. Uh, it's a great book because it does try to reframe our thinking about uh, what the what the period of the revolution meant uh, right. on in in parts of the continent that would become the United States. Right, right. Uh, but why don't you talk a little yeah. bit about the genesis of this book and yeah. what it tries to do? Yeah. So um, when my advisor was reading my dissertation, one of the things he said about it was uh, just you know one of those little you know small parts of it. He said, "It seems that you think that the Spanish won the American Revolution." <laughs> ha ha ha. <laughs> and I sort of thought, oh, okay, he's making fun of me as usual, but. I think the Spanish think they won the American Revolution. <laughs> and so that sort of knocked around the back of my head yeah. for the next few years as I was finishing my first book and working on some other things. And uh, what if I wrote a book about the American Revolution that had the Spanish at the center of it? Yeah. Um, and so I started yeah. to do that. And then it grew from there. And, and, and it's actually not just the Spanish. It's sort of um, many different kinds of people who lived on yeah. the Gulf Coast, which was very diverse at the time of the American Revolution. So. Uh, Chickasaws and uh, uh, Creeks and French and Spanish and, and British loyalists. Mm. Yeah, so, so the Gulf Coast becomes the kind of centerpiece uh, rather than the Atlantic Coast. Right, right. Uh, I love this idea of the Spanish thought they won the <laughs> American Revolution. And uh, Talk a little bit more about mm -hmm. that. Let's start with the um, Spanish and um, how they fit into this story. Right, so um, one of the things I had to teach myself as I was – um, working on my first book and then moving into this, is that at the end of the Seven Years' War, the end of the French and Indian War, the Spanish um, actually expanded their empire. So before that, they had Mexico, Texas, California. Um, but when the French were defeated, the Spanish took the western half of what had been French Louisiana. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. by the time of the Revolution, the Spanish had... Um, Everything east of uh, everything west of the Mississippi, including New Orleans. How did that work out? Tell me a little bit about the end of the Seven Years' War. Mm -hmm. How did the Spanish end up in Louisiana? We know that the British 
conquered Canada. Right. So, so they so didn't the, conquer Louisiana. <laughs> right. So well, why did the French right. say, you know, forget it, we're out of the uh, empire business in North So America. the Spanish were actually France's ally right. in, the, in the French the, and Indian Wars. The you bourbon know. Uh, family uh, right, compact. Exactly. Right, exactly. Um, all bourbons. Yeah, and so the, it was sort of just a sop to the Spanish. The French handed Louisiana over to well, the Spanish. Because the Spanish executed. sort of bumbled into the war and then had Havana taken right. at the last right, exactly, minute. So I guess right. they felt right. bad. Right. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so France felt bad, bad Havana towards Spain. Got right, right. Spain got Havana back, which was the, the thing they wanted most. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, Britain, in so very complicated negotiations at the end, Britain actually got what's today the state of Florida, what Britain called East Florida, right. from the Spanish, which the Spanish had had since uh, the beginning of the 1500s. And it's sort of in payback for that that France gives Louisiana yeah. to Spain. I think that for those of us in the traditional early American framework, uh, we always forget about the Spanish in right. Florida. Right. And right. they'd been there since yeah. Yeah, the middle of the, the 16th first, right? century. They, <laughs> right. they destroyed a right. French colony that attempted right. to settle exactly. in, like, I don't right. know, 1535 or some yeah, crazy yeah. early date yeah, like right, that. Right, right. Yeah. Maybe a little later than yeah, that. Yeah, But at any rate, uh, yeah, that and it's sort of like, and even if in a lecture class, for instance, I'm thinking back to my big you know, survey course, even if I talked about St. Augustine was settled mm -hmm. by the Spanish and yeah. it's the first permanent European right. settlement, North America. I never talked. You about don't it mention again. it again, <laughs> right? <laughs> Who knows what anybody was doing down right, there? Right. But they weren't yeah. expanding. Right, I mean, they it, weren't. You know. Right, right. Yeah. And so it's one of these places yeah. where, you know, the Spanish were able to keep these posts in Florida, yeah. in Texas, later in Louisiana. But they didn't do like a mission system like they did in California. Or there's a mission or system in Florida, but yeah. but not in Louisiana at no. all. I mean, the Spanish yeah. when they take they sort of take Louisiana at the end of the Seven Years' War. Right. They they send about five guys, mm -hmm. and they are Hola, you know, nominally uh, in charge, right? Yeah. <laughs> but basically <laughs> all the men working for them yeah. are either French or uh, or native. Yeah. And um, they're you – know, but the Spanish have big plans. Mm -hmm. uh, they mm -hmm. – Think yeah, that this is their frontier. This is of their frontier, their great right? Exactly, Mexican right? Exactly, and so yeah. Mexico uh, is you know booming. This is the dawn of a new Spanish empire to them is the yeah. end of the 18th century. They'll be expanding north. Uh, they will eventually have, they can't quite figure out where to get colonists from, but they will uh, compete with Britain by yeah. bringing in colonists, forming plantations, bringing in slavery uh, to an extent they hope um, that the French hadn't been able to uh, really make um, make profitable this place of Louisiana that they think should be profitable. Yeah. There's uh, the land and the climate there should should be good for raising plantation crops. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a new a new vision for a possible kind of empire that's right. not based on mining and uh, right. extractive right. use of the natives so much. Yeah, that's right. Right. They think right. the natives right. are too savage. Essentially, yeah, it's not like yeah. the civilized natives from Mexico. Exactly. But right. Sort of the horse raiders of the Apache and the Comanche. Yeah. Right. What are you going to do with them? Yeah. You know, that's exactly. the problem. Right. That's right. And <laughs> and and, and um, these these oh, these Enlightenment inspired yeah. imperial officials. They're looking 100 years in the future, mm -hmm. right? So they say, okay, Apaches, Osage, today we'll ally with you. We'll try yeah. to get along 50 years, 100 years from now. We'll have real colonies here the mm -hmm. way we want to run mm -hmm. them. Um, mm -hmm. But in the meantime, they're making yeah. alliances with Indians. And okay, good. So the, uh, so the American Revolution breaks out mm -hmm. uh, in your book. When does it begin? Your, how does your book begin? What's the first episode? Let's take a look. Let's open this up. Oh yes, of course. It's you know you frame this all around the siege at Pensacola, right, right. But your first chapter is all mm -hmm. about the Gulf Coast and so like what, right. What, so it starts in seventeen, uh, yeah. briefly starts in seventeen eighty one with the siege of Pensacola by the Spanish against the British. Yeah. Uh, but then we step back yeah. and introduce the. And you wouldn't want to tell anyone what actually happened. Right. Right. <laughs> make them work. Right, for exactly. It. <laughs> <laughs> to get to halfway through the book yes. before you find out That's what happened. That's all very dramatic, speech. but let me give you some context. <laughs> right. <laughs> Such a historian's name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's done very nicely. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for rescuing that. Yeah, yeah. But this, so the Spanish see the American Revolution, this sort of what start, you know, the way the Spanish see it, it's sure it starts with this little rebellion mm -hmm. uh, by these sort of powerless colonists. Um, but the real war is going to be this imperial war, yeah. uh, sort of a rematch of the Seven Years' War. Spanish and French again will fight Britain. There's no reason why they shouldn't get the Floridas back. Right, right I mean, exactly, right. Yeah. yeah, so they think, yeah, we'll yeah. take advantage of, of 
Britain having to try to put down this rebellion. In the meantime, mm -hmm. we can take back the Floridas. We can expand yeah. uh, at Britain's expense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, interesting. But but you ultimately structure the book around biographies. Right. You, you decided, you know, that is compelling and uh, geopolitical. But that's it's all. What I think you found is that the story is really complex ultimately. Right. Because it's not right. just Spanish yeah, against the British. There's exactly. the Native Americans and right. the others and the yeah. French and whatnot. Right. And even if you wanted to tell the story of just the Spanish against the British, both sides are constantly concerned with recruiting locals to fight on their side because the Spanish yeah. and the British themselves don't have that many people there. So, you know, that many soldiers that they can devote to this effort. So yeah. it's a sort of local militia who may be English speaking, a lot of whom are French speaking, uh, that both the Spanish and the British are trying to recruit, and uh, Chickasaws and Choctaws and Creeks. Um, so, so all of those people, those are the majority of the population. So if there's going to be a war here on the Gulf Coast, which there will be in the revolution, um, it needs to involve people whose alliances, whose loyalties aren't clear. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that come, I, I think what people on the ground wanted and what empires could provide to them, could promise yeah them come really comes to the surface when an empire is trying to get people to fight for them one of the great things you're able to do in the book that uh, I think if you go back a generation if somebody tried to tell this story they wouldn't be as adept at is uh, really uh, your ability to capture multiple voices mm -hmm. and perspectives I think you know that we've been talking kind of about grand strategy mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. you know or you know the high level of political empire contestation um, but your book is really about people experiencing this world from a lot of different angles right, of view. Right. And, you know, you have incredible sensi sensitivity to try to, you know, try to discover and find an enslaved person who's right, part right. of the story right, or, you know, right. someone who's a, uh, you know, a British immigrant who's new to the region or the French. So talk a little bit about that. Uh, why did you want to try to tell the story that way? Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, and I guess um, how are you able to, you know, to have that kind of sensitivity. Well, I, th I think you're right. It really does come out of my earlier work and mm -hmm. trying to write American Indian history earlier from American Indian perspectives um, when the written documents are often written by Europeans and you yeah. have to read through them to figure out you know, what were people who didn't write these documents trying to do, what might have they have been thinking, what might their strategies mm -hmm. have been. So I did want to continue doing that kind of work in this book. And also I think that following different characters, different kinds of people, helps the reader to understand these really complicated, diverse people. Mm -hmm. it's, it's such a complicated place. If I just sort of wrote paragraph about after paragraph about that these people were here and these people were here and this yeah. is what they were doing, this is what they were doing, I think it could be quite a slog. But yeah. uh, following somebody like... Um, an enslaved man named Petit Jean as the, so he grew up in Mobile, he w had a French master who was a slave. And you discovered him in the archives. I discovered him in the archives. Yeah. No one's ever written about Petit Jean. No, no. He's, he's not famous. Right. He is not famous at all, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, but uh, he shows up in the archive. I mean, he, he shows up in the way slaves often do on lists of mm. lists of slaves, but mm. it, you know that's not much information. But he really shows up in the archives because when the Spanish took Mobile in 1780, they somehow met him and found out that he so he was a slave who worked with cattle on the outskirts of Mobile. Mm. So he knew the region really well, knew the different paths. Um, who lived where? So he drove cattle. So he, he drove was kind cattle, of all exactly. around. Right, right, right. So right. So he would yeah. he was uh, with the cattle, um, and then would drive them into the city when mm -hmm. the town of Mobile. Yeah. When uh, but a perfect cover too for somebody. Exactly. So he to, keeps being a uh, right around. a cattle yeah. driver, and mm -hmm. yet now he has been enlisted to mm -hmm. spy for the Spanish and also to carry messages for the Spanish. Mm. Um, so. So through, you know, I'm able to find out some about what he thought, what he might have imagined he would get out of the Spanish. Eventually no. he does manage to get his freedom uh, because of his work for the Spanish. Is he literate? He's not literate, okay. right. So a lot of, you know, you know, what I think he thought comes from his actions rather yeah. than his words. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a skill that, that ethno-historians do in, in American Indian history. So I think I was able to apply that to... Um, Imagine and talk about how yeah. I sort of what analyze the range what of exactly would right, be. right, right. Um. So he gets his freedom eventually, and he's able to use the Spanish. The Spanish help him negotiate for the freedom of his wife as well. Um, and, and, and 
so I can tell his story and to some extent that of his wife, but also through them talk about what slavery was like on the Gulf Coast mm. in this era that I think people are not as familiar with. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, this becomes the Cotton South in right. the 19th century. Very and different. Right. People imagine cotton plantations, hundreds and hundreds mm -hmm. of slaves. Um, but in this earlier period, you know, here he is, he's a cattle driver. In his day-to-day -day life, he has a fair amount of freedom, you could say. I mean, definitely a slave, definitely doesn't have complete control in any way over his larger life. But he spends a lot of time when he does have, mm. uh, does have some freedom. And within the Spanish system, he had certain rights, um, and slaves had certain opportunities to get their freedom mm -hmm. from slavery. Right. That would be impossible later in the 19th century South. So, so yeah. he, I tell his, his story, his perspective, um, but that also tells a bigger story about slavery in, in the period. Yeah. So, so you're able to choose these biographies of folks and, and draw in their their broader experience. And uh, I think one of the um, one of the reactions to anyone who reads this book is it's just surprising. It's mm -hmm. like, well, this is these are surprising mm -hmm. stories that you've never heard before yeah. um, during this period mm -hmm. in time. Uh, what are some of the other uh, characters that you really felt like you you were able to discover them in a way that mm -hmm. they just didn't come out in the literature that existed? Yeah, yeah. So um, one of them is uh, is a woman named Margaret O'Brien Pollock. Yeah. And she grew up in Ireland, but her uh, um, so her family was Catholic and was a um, and opposed British rule of Ireland. So her father joins the French fight against the British. She follows him eventually to French Louisiana, later to Spanish Louisiana. And uh, she gets involved in the revolution as women often do because her husband gets involved mm -hmm. in the American mm -hmm. Revolution. So mm -hmm. she's married to Oliver Pollock, who becomes one of the great financiers of the revolution. In fact, loses his fortune mm. um, in funding the American Revolution on the side of, of the revolutionaries of the Americans. And I was, I think, you know, when we tell big histories of war, we often lose what happens to women because they often aren't the ones mm -hmm. uh, writing about the battles. Another source problem. As Another well, source right? problem, mm -hmm. exactly, right. You don't and like to make it easier. Yeah, I do not. <laughs> George Washington, you could write about him. You know, he's maybe, right there. Maybe I should do that next. <laughs> he says what he thinks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so she is, uh, uh, Oliver Pollock at, at one point goes off to try to get money back uh, that he's lent after the revolution to, yeah, uh, from, <laughs> right, from Virginia and from Congress. Georgia and Congress. Yeah, and, uh, right. Um, mm -hmm. And she's left in New Orleans, and they've had to sell the house uh, because of his debts. Mm. Uh, and she gets, over time, confined to a smaller and smaller part of the house. Mm. The, land, the, the man who bought it is letting her live in a little bit of it, but then a smaller and smaller bit of it. She's got, by that point, uh, five children, and she's pregnant with another one. Mm. And... Think, wow, this is not a part of war we usually think about. Mm -hmm. What happens to the woman left behind uh, now, you know, with under mm -hmm. another man's power? She appeals to the Spanish governor for help, um, and uh, she's uh, she does write letters, and she's uh, mm -hmm. very angry, and she gets told by the Spanish governor that women aren't supposed to write that way. And uh, <laughs> she, so she, when I found these letters that she'd written to the Spanish That's governor, awesome. I thought, okay, this yeah. so <laughs> this has, has to be part of the story because we just. We don't find that part. Of no, yeah, you don't see that. Yeah, right. yeah, and yet it is related to the revolution, mm -hmm. both to mm -hmm. sort of the, sort of the, sort of on the ground facts of the, the revolution, disruption what it, that the it disruption creates. that it creates, yeah. and mm -hmm. then also to who gets new things out of the revolution, yeah. who gets citizenship, who gets a greater right. say in government, and who doesn't. And mm -hmm. most women don't. You know, they are still supposed to be represented by their husbands, and. Um, well, Not and the revolution's the defense. Uh, she was in Louisiana. <laughs> right, she was part right, of America. Right, that's right. Time, that's so. right. Oh, but but uh, uh, so when Louisiana becomes part <laughs> yeah, of the United well, States, of course. Okay. So <laughs> the British, yeah. uh, sorry, the French and Spanish colonies didn't have coverture. So women yeah. actually had legal identity mm. within those colonies. When it becomes part of the United States, the United States so continues. So they actually, uh, the United States continues the British uh, legal system of coverture. Um, and so women mm. living in the French and Spanish colonies as they got taken over by the United States actually lost mm. their right to sign contracts, to, um, to sue or be sued, to, and, and which, which of course is essential to running your own business. Mm -hmm. uh, they lose the right to own property. Um, so and that's one of the themes yeah, you play with right, throughout the book right. is sort of like who are the winners and who are the losers right, and, right, right. Uh, in the story. Yeah. But one of the dangers, I guess, of having eight 
different biographies and, and, and you do have a diversity of um, perspectives, which is a great way to tell the complexity of the story. But then someone at the end of it might say, well, what does it all mean, yeah, Catherine? Right, what, is, right. what have you told us <laughs> here? And, and so what does it all mean? Yeah, so I think it, beyond just the sort of... Uh, well, there's an act of yeah, rediscovery, right. which right, is really right, exactly. crucial. So, so, so beyond so that, that yeah. I, yeah, I think it's that, um, you know, here's a place that did, where the people there did not think they would be part of the United States. They yeah. did not. Um, during the Revolution, the 19th century in mm. which the United States takes over the continent mm. uh, very rapidly yeah. in, in, the, in world history, right, um, is unimaginable to the people living there. I love that point. I mean, you, ma you make that very well. And, and, and it's really an important perspective yeah. to get our heads around. It's so hard. Everything in the past seems inevitable. Right, I mean, right, because it did happen. Because it <laughs> right. happened, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say what didn't happen because exactly. it, clearly right. it wasn't meant to be, right? <laughs> right, right. So uh, that's, uh, you know, that's such an important uh, thing to do. And, and this is such a great way to do it is to look at this period, this part of what we know becomes part of you know, the United States. Florida is part of right. the United States. Right. Everybody knows right. that. And pretty soon. And yeah. it, yes, and pretty soon. <gasps> but it's really not on anyone's radar. Right, right. Um, you know, so it does speak um, on the it does speak on the one hand to the revolutionary character of the revolution. That is to say, the creation of this new nation that's going to be able to act out um, in ways that no one could imagine the colonies right. were able to. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, right. that's um, right. But on yeah. the other hand, it, it is important to recognize mm -hmm. that their experience of the Revolutionary mm -hmm. War is completely different from yeah. what we right. come to know. Right. And it also, one of the things I realized as I was working on this is just, I mean, I, other people know this, but how important the 1780s are. Mm. That the 1780s are a period where mm. there are Americans crossing the Appalachians thinking they are actually going to leave the United yeah. States, that yeah. they may form a new republic across the Appalachians. Maybe they'll be allied with the United States, but some of them think maybe they will you know, join a colony that's under the Spanish mm. because they, you know, the, top of their economic agenda is having access to the Mississippi River. And if Spain controls the Mississippi River, which Spain does for most of the 1780s, then living under the Spanish might be worth it mm. uh, to them. Um, so I think the 1780s are this time where it, it, a lot of different things could have happened. And it, in some ways it's the Constitution that comes at the, you know, the end of the 1780s that, uh, that helps to create the 19th yeah, century the that we know is going to happen. To project power. Yes, exactly. Well, why right. didn't the Spanish take advantage of that? Oh, they that, tried that very moment. hard. Yeah. <laughs> they tried. Yeah, because I know there's oh, lots of correspondence oh. from you know Gardo Key mm -hmm. and right. Wilkinson yeah. and these you know all these Kentuckians mm -hmm. and Franklinites and these others out yeah. there that are you know dancing with mm -hmm. the Spanish and, and yeah. promising they'll join if yeah. they can right. sell their goods. Right. But, yeah. But why why didn't the Spanish just say you know what let's go on let's put an army out there and let's do mm -hmm. it let's go for it. So I think there's a sort of what was happening at the Spanish court that right. so Ardoki couldn't exactly. make that happen? Yeah, I think there's a uh, – so the, the Spanish officials on the ground want to make it happen. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and, and so, so I say maybe there are two issues. One is the um, the maybe incompatibility of promises that Spanish mm. officials are making to people. So as we talked about earlier, the Spanish are promising uh, these large, powerful Indian groups uh, yeah. that, uh, that the Spanish will protect their lands yeah. – against the United States, and at the same time, they're inviting Americans yeah. to settle pretty close to or maybe on those lands. Right. So those things yeah. are completely incompatible, and Indians and settlers know that. Right, right. Well, it strikes yeah. me, yeah, as you're saying that, it strikes me, this is the period where of the Comanchero. It's a period where you do have a treaty or at least some relationship with the Comanches mm -hmm. that the Spanish are able to right. establish. Right. So and they that are working on their kind of yeah, other side. Exactly, of and that's official that Spanish equation. policy, yeah. right, is, is that. That's like 1782 yeah. or 92 yeah. or right. something like right. that. Right, right. So, so officials yeah. on the ground, and it is official Spanish policy, are really trying to do that, trying yeah. to, um, but at the same time they're inviting settlers in, mm -hmm. uh, and, mm -hmm. and everybody knows those things don't work together. Th those aren't a secret. Um, and Spain has a huge empire yeah. and Retro, sending in yeah. troops uh, to do something on this far edge of it mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't seem 
all that important. Yeah, it's you know, the important court will say, you know, that sounds great, yeah. but it is the far frontier from the, and yeah. it's far from the things that really matter to it's Spain. Expensive resources right. are stretched. Exactly, they and, still and have then the Philippines, right? I mean, they have a right, an right, Asian empire, right? Exactly, and and, and uh, certainly some people in court think Asia is the future, and mm. that that's where they should be putting their yeah. resources to. Yeah. They're they're uh, of course um, still deeply invested in Mexico, Peru, um, yeah. and then of course European politics and wars happen and eventually Napoleon comes to power and, and yeah. then the Spanish yeah. court comes completely under him and doesn't make yeah. its own decisions for a while. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, so we, we, the then the young uh, United States government is able to take advantage right. of that right. know, as they do right. so well. Yeah. Well, we can't stop talking about the book without mentioning a little bit about uh, Bernardo de Galvez. Oh, good, he's, good. He's, um, he's become famous uh, recently. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Spanish uh, ambassador was here at the library uh, giving us uh, a, a series of books uh, for our collection. Um, but it was all in the context of this uh, increasing uh, enthusiasm for Bernardo de Galvez. He was made an honorary citizen of the United States. They put up his portrait mm -hmm. right in the Senate uh, mm -hmm. office building, right, I think. Right. Which they uh, promised to do in the 1780s. They just got yeah, around to it. Right, which is a great story. <laughs> right. But you seem to you know, like be right there, Johnny on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, my book's all about Bernardo de Galvez. Right. How does this happen? With that you? was just a, just completely lucky. Uh -huh. um, but yeah. he is a great character. It's not surprising that he's finally getting some interest. He's yeah. the uh, the governor of Louisiana uh, when the revolution breaks out, or when the revolution comes to the Gulf Coast, and so he he's the general who leads the Spanish forces uh, that end up taking Mobile and Pensacola and the rest of West Florida and eventually the Bahamas as well. Um, well, he, would, he seems like a person who fits very nicely with our founding father yeah, types. Yeah, you know? he does. He's right. an enlightenment uh, yeah. guy. He He's is. a general. Right, right. He, yeah. he, is, uh, he thinks a lot about people on the ground mm. and what matters to yeah. colonists if they, um, you know, some say in their governance, not much, but a little bit, um, mm. but definitely security in, in their land holdings, mm. access to world markets. Um, he, yeah, he's an Enlightenment reader, uh, very much thinks the future of the Spanish Empire is um, sort of more rational bureaucracy, um, free trade, mm. freer trade. But he's completely a man of empire. Mm -hmm. He is not a man of revolution at all. He ends up, uh, uh, when he dies, there are rumors that he's been poisoned by the crown because mm. he uh, might be fomenting revolution in Mexico. Um, but uh, there's no evidence of that. I'm pretty sure he wasn't. But mm. uh, I think people would like him to be revolutionary. But I think what's exciting about him is he, he's, he seems like a founding father in many yeah. ways. Uh, but he thinks the future, the best future is through empire. Yeah, interesting. Well, now he's a citizen. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. Uh, whether he wants it or not. Right. Yeah, it's like those faiths that baptize right, people. Right, right. He's, long after he's, they're dead. He's a revolutionary yeah. and a Republican now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, well, it, you know, it, it is hard, I think. Uh, we, we uh, too, reflexively associate Enlightenment with Republicanism mm -hmm. or Republican thinking. When, of course, right. some of the most famous Enlightenment figures are despots, you know, uh, benevolent monarchs. Right, right. Frederick the Great or something Right, like right, that. exactly. They he's think, in that yeah. kind of model. Yeah, of right. And I think, yeah. you know, reading what they think about how sort of good rule from the top yeah. is the best people, the, the best thing for people in the middle and at the bottom mm. is, boy, it really, as an American, it, it can make you think, I'm not think differently about today, but realize there was a... This sounds like Woodrow Wilson to me. <laughs> <laughs> right, I better be careful. I only talk about the past, <laughs> not the present. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's Wilson's 100 years ago. So right, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, uh, you know, and I think that, I think that um, the Enlightenment meant different things as well, right, obviously, to right, different people right, at the time. Right. But he is a compelling figure, and his wife is a astonishing woman of the age right, as well. Right, right, exactly. She's, uh, she's French, uh, French Louisianan. And, and they, uh, did he meet her there? What, right, So he was yes. appointed there and then he, he was, marries? Yes, which a okay. Spanish official was not actually supposed to do. He wrote one of those. Uh, they don't take any oaths or anything like that, uh, right? Like, well, why, so why aren't Spanish officials they, supposed they aren't to supposed to get that involved with uh, local people. So really? the assumption is they'll be, you know, in a few years Moved they'll be transferred. And while they're there, they're, right, whatever. they're not supposed to have family ties there. They're supposed to... Uh, be above that. 
Um, so he writes. They represent the crown. Because they represent yeah. the crown, right? Yeah. And they're supposed to be neutral. You know, they don't want to get tied into mm-hmm. some family network. Yeah. There they have to be right. for all people. Right. So they they get secretly married, and then he writes one of these sort of bureaucrats' letter to the crown. Oh, sorry. Something <laughs> happened. I got hitched. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ask permission afterwards. Yeah. Right. Well, that's a long way. I mean, that's a long way to right. right. The famous saying in the Spanish Empire is that. They say it in Madrid, and then I don't know. What, what's the famous saying? There's something that has to do with, <laughs> right. you know, they Basically. say it's day and then it's night. I don't know, right, something right, like that. Right, um, right. Uh, well, it, it, it is not. It is great for you to have the serendipity of Bernardo Galvez and all that going on. But it, it's it's an interesting. Uh, I've really enjoyed getting the learning more about him because again, I, it's a story I never really understood. And the American Revolution really is a global war. Right, we, right. we say this, even mm-hmm. as professors, we kind of know this, but. Uh, it takes people like you to really help us connect mm-hmm. the dots. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Mm-hmm. What's the next uh, project? Or do you want to say? Some people don't like to talk about the well, next because it makes them feel squirrely. Yeah. <laughs> no, I actually know a historian who feel squirrely, refuses to do talks on their <laughs> ongoing project hmm. because they haven't decided what they want to say yet, and they don't want to get locked in to any yeah, arguments. I, yeah, I, I can understand that. Though I think talking mm. about it they get helps paid a lot. This particular yeah, story gets right, paid a lot okay. more than you <laughs> that and I sounds do like to, a to different write a book. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I, yeah. I'm still definitely still at the level where I like yeah. to talk about it so that I can change <laughs> my mind while we talk. Um, yeah. uh, so I think my next book is, the, the book that I'm working on right now, in some ways takes my argument from the native ground, this n- argument mm. about... Mm. Um, that there were places yeah. in the centuries of colonial America where Indians had more power than Europeans. Right, 1492 yeah. until some point in the 19th century, yeah. Indians have most of the power on the continent. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to make that that, that big so argument about North America. To frame a story around that concept. Exactly, right, yeah. right. Um, so the idea is that that's the big argument that, that – uh, Know, to readers who may think everything changed in 1492 or who may have uh, difficulty quite understanding why today American Indians are still in nations, mm-hmm. even though they're nations mm-hmm. within the United States. You know, when you talk to an American Indian today, they will say they're Chickasaw or they're Osage. Yeah. Um, and I think non-Indian Americans have some trouble sometimes understanding how that connects to the past if their myth about the past, if, if what they think about the past is that American Indians mostly died off right. or yeah. lost most, you know, all of their power very quickly in the colonial period. Is there, were there Native Americans on your consciousness in, in Arkansas? Were there big communities there? So there the are, Ozarks, actually, the, the, right. I mean, but I did not know that growing up. I think really? to many Americans, so American Indians are, yeah, right, somewhere in the are past, invisible, right? right? They're in the past. Yeah. Or the Navajo, maybe. Right, right, right. They're somewhere else, right, right. They're yeah. in the West. Or, yeah. um, but, but place names in Arkansas, and of course, turns out this is true all over the country. <coughs> the well, place a lot names of things were native. Name, right, yeah. right, exactly, <laughs> right. And so yeah. I, I just, in some ways, what brought me to this work in the beginning mm. was sort of the how do these things connect? Yeah. How does the fact that all of these places that I love, that I know the names of, um, are clearly American Indian names, and yet I don't know any American Indians, which wasn't true at all. It turned out I, I knew a lot of American Indians. I mm. just didn't – I had a stereotype of what they would look like and what yeah. they would be like that I think um, – Well, let me ask you yeah. this then. So are you involved with any Native group? Do you talk to Native groups? Yeah, so um, – like Yeah, so we have a very large Native Studies program at UNC mm-hmm. um, with yeah. a lot of Native faculty and yeah, students. Great, great history of great faculty there. Yeah, yeah, which is just a, a wonderful community. In fact, this book that I'm working on now, I don't think I would be able to do if I didn't have a yeah. strong community uh, mm-hmm. to, to help me think some of these things through, especially the connections to the present mm-hmm. um, as a North American historian. There's going to um, be a chapter on George Washington? Th- there will th- you will be mentioned, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> no chapter? <laughs> I think about a chapter. I'm going to get myself here for a fellowship. The Washington <laughs> years. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I also, yeah. so, um, so I'm going uh, in a couple weeks to the Clinton Library in uh, in Little Rock where they're putting on a a seminar for teachers that the Quapaw tribe is involved in. And the Quapaws are doing most of the talking, but I'll be talking a little bit about the colonial period. Mm. Um, And just discovering what uh, people like the Quapaws and other tribes are doing these days to Mm. revitalize language. I mean, some are even, you know, they're having to go back to colonial era sources to to put, say, a dictionary that uh, a Jesuit priest made, put that together with sort of um, the remnants of the language that have existed recently and try to reconstruct it. It's Mm. just, it's just this amazing intellectual and really important cultural work that, um, that a lot of different tribes are doing. And I 
it's just been amazing to learn about that and then to try to you know and this is one an effort to bring it into the classroom for uh, for middle school students in this mm. case um, mm. which I think is really important it's just and, and part of my reason for I think wanting to write this new book just to to help with that kind of effort to remind Americans that American Indians are part of today mm. uh, they aren't just in the past well, it sounds like a fascinating study sounds like a big book yeah and yeah. Uh, I wish yeah. you well with thank that. you that, you certainly should come back for a fellowship I at some would love point. to I will figure uh, out a way to do that there'll be a way I mean Washington <laughs> lived uh, when there were plenty of Indians absolutely and he knew know, it who were, and, and he 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 spent his early years in, in Indian country that's where right. they were in charge and right, it right. took him a while to figure that out I think yes but, uh, that's right that's right <laughs> yes yeah and so yeah. by the time he was president I think you know that's, yeah. he knew it yeah. Now that you know his first little trip out there when he's going to Fort LeBeouf to tell the French to leave <laughs> You know, and he can't even get to Fort LeBeouf <laughs> right. without Indians. Right, exactly. Um, but, you know, yeah. trying to convince them to yeah. go to Fort LeBeouf, yeah. you know, he's got to do Indian diplomacy, which nobody wants to do because right. it takes, like, days. Exactly. And you got to sit right. here, and there's wampum, right. and there's smoking, and right. everybody's like, what is happening? <laughs> uh, you just clearly get a sense of somebody who's out of their element. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Washington, I think, is a quick study when it comes to these things, right. but he's clearly right. impatient right. with it. Right, right. But he's not in charge. You know, no, you can't, exactly. Uh, Right. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's the reality yeah. uh, for so much of colonial right. history. Right, exactly. That it's been yeah. so hard for, you know, the 13 colonies to incorporate well. Right, know? right. And yeah. You think about that very incident. That is yeah. that is the 18th century. Yeah. That's well into the colonial yeah. period. And yeah. it is not very not far, far west. <laughs> yeah. Well, he got there in 60 <laughs> days. Right. So, no, it wasn't, right? Yeah. He left from Williamsburg. Yeah. And right. there he is. Right, you know, right, so. right. Uh, no, it, you know, the, the great work in Native American history, you know, is to first to recover and, and help make sense of uh, the histories and not just the, you know, the, the myths. And, yeah, um, yeah. But then to incorporate it more and more into, you know, the, the what we call the mainstream, mm -hmm. you know, the imperial stories that right. we knew or thought right. we knew right. in a way that shows how powerful and important the Indians are. I mean, right. Right. It's really been an incredible accomplishment, of which you're a part of. Right, right. Uh, thank you very much. But yeah. it has—it's a big change that I'm just a small part of. But I think it's it's just tremendously important, and yeah. it really has become. I, th I think the overwhelming way that we as historians and we as teachers yeah. tell early America that Indians are right there, a part of it, yeah. all the whole way, um, and I hope one that's spreading into the into the wider public as well. All right. Well, we could all hope that. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and. And talking, I think we went a little long, but uh, I'm sure everybody was delighted. <laughs> it was my so, great pleasure. Yeah, I hope to have you, you back so sometime. much. Thank yeah. you. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.